I want to invite you to hear some of the greatest declarations known to humanity. And then I have a question. Listen to these great declarations. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Lots of you knew all of those declarations, or at least most of them, or at least one of them. They sound so familiar familiar to us in the church, and they're so wonderful as far as what they mean. My question for you, though, is, what did they have in common? What do those great declarations like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and do this in remembrance of me. What do those things have in common? Well, I suppose they have numerous things in common. I I hope you can think of at least one thing that they would have in common. Uh, Let's start with, uh, they're all from the New Testament. That's true. Um, They're all either about or from Jesus. That would also be true. It's important. And the last thing I'll mention, and maybe some of you want extra credit and you have even more, but the last thing that I'll mention for now would be, they all have this in common. They all come from, originally, at least in concept, at least in seed form, the foundation for each of those great Christian New Testament declarations. They all come from Exodus in the Old Testament. They all come from the Passover in Exodus in the Old Testament. And my point to introduce our subject today is the New Testament expects us to know quite a bit about the Old Testament. And so we're studying the book of Exodus together. We're trying to kind of go as fast as we can. It's 40 chapters. And today we're going to continue that study. So if you have a Bible, you can find the book of Exodus. It's not very hard. It's the second book of the Bible. And today, Lord willing, we'll be in chapters 11, 12, and maybe 13. And we are doing this study for lots of different reasons, but a a major reason for me as a pastor who is called to love and care for Christians, for, for the sheep, uh, is because I want you to, to understand Jesus better. I want you to understand Christianity better. I want you to understand the New Testament better. I want you to understand the whole Bible better. I want, to, I want you to know God better. But it really does, the New Testament, assume that we know at least a thing or two about the old. And uh, you'll really um, be wise to learn a lot about Exodus and the Passover. If you've ever uh, studied a different language other than your native tongue, um, sometimes what you do is you find books uh, on, on the words, the, the lexical books, and what they'll do is they'll give you things in order, like, okay, this word is used most often, and so learn that first. 
And then at the very end of the book, these words are hardly ever used. So put that lower on your priority list. That's how it was for me. I remember studying Greek. Give, get, let me do the easy stuff first because it's going to give me better traction. Well, Exodus is kind of like that. So it's one of those Old Testament books. If you want, if you can learn a thing or two about the book of Exodus, it's really going to give you traction when it comes to the New Testament. It's really going to help you. It's really worth your time early on. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. The book of Exodus is pretty straightforward. It's about exiting. Okay. So it's about leaving. So today we're going to talk about Passover. Guess what that's about? If Exodus is about exiting, Passover is about passing over. I like to say, am I going too fast for you? We make this stuff way too hard sometimes. So the people of Israel want to exit. They want to leave Egypt. They've been enslaved for some 400 years. They've been oppressed. They've been treated badly, enslaved by the Egyptians under the leadership of Pharaoh for some 400 years. And they want to exit. They want to leave. And God has uniquely appeared to them specifically to Moses, the leader, and he has uniquely appeared to Moses and he's promised Moses as the leader, but also he's promised the people that he would deliver them. He would redeem them. He would set them free. He would pay the ransom, if you will, so that they could be set free so they could exit. And that's what, that's what's happening in the book of Exodus. And where the section we're in right now is dealing with the 10 plagues. And we've looked at the first nine, and now we're going to look at the tenth one, which is climactic. It's all been building to the ultimate one. And if you're just joining us, we've pointed this out in the past, uh, plague is how we remember it. It's what is common. But the, the word that's actually used is a, a word that has to do with uh, striking or a, a blow, like in a fight. So God is striking the Egyptians. He's dealing blows to the Egyptians. And some of them are pestilence-ish, if you get the idea. Uh, but plague is an old word that actually is more general than just pestilence. It's blows, it strikes. God is going to defeat them is what's going on there. So I hope you found the book of Exodus by now. And I'm ready to move on. Hopefully you're ready to move on. Exodus 11.1. 1. And we'll start learning about redemption. We'll start learning about God redeeming, setting free, freeing his people. Let's go ahead and dive in. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague, one strike, one blow more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. It's like this finally kind of thing. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. You say, why? Well, let's keep reading and it'll tell us why. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Ever so quickly, Moses, don't miss it, is great. We should all say amen. That's right. Moses is a great character. He's a great figure. He's seen as great by the Israelites. He's seen as great even by the Egyptians. He's great because he's brave. He's great because the book of Hebrews says he's a man of faith. He trusts God. He's great because he's a mediator. 
There's no question. He's, he's the key mediator in the book. Uh, he's great for those kinds of reasons. He's a great representative. Oh, he's a great worker of miracles. He's greatly blessed of God. And I'm pointing out the obvious to you because it does anticipate a greater mediator. He does anticipate a greater mediator. In fact, the Lord Jesus, when he comes thousands of years later, will refer to himself in relationship back to Moses. Okay? So Moses is not perfect, but they think he's great. And you should think he's great, but he's not the great one. But Jesus will say, he spoke of me. Or later on too, Jesus will say at the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, he's affirming Moses, but he'll then say as the greater mediator, greater Moses on a greater mountain, if you will, but I say to you, different, and yet in another sense, similar. It's important that we, we see that. It's unmistakable. One anticipates the other. Verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. And I think a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that the Passover is awful. And I'll say it again, and I mean it in a double sense, right? It is awful. It is horrific. There's going to be horrific death, catastrophic death. Death is not good. This is going to be a bloodbath, if you will. This is going to be horrific. But the Passover is also awful in the sense of your jaw drops and you're in awe. God is going to save his people in a way that is remarkable. Okay. In contrast. So that's the bad, the negative, the, the, the judgment that comes, but there's gonna be, there's gonna be redemption through the judgment. How about verse seven? But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. How about this? Here's why. That you may know, God is very into this, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. Then verse eight goes on to say, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It's kind of fascinating. There's purpose. Bad acting, bad hearted Pharaoh is going to do bad things still. And yet God uses bad acting, bad Pharaoh for something good and great. And that's to show his power and majesty. God does that kind of thing. And he's going to do it here. They're going to be able to see God in his greatness in a way they wouldn't otherwise have seen it. 
Okay, verse 10 says, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've seen that again and again, and I won't take the time to rehearse it all, but you see the interplay. Sometimes it's Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes the Lord hardens his heart. He's a bad actor to begin with. He's given his own desires. Let's keep going for now. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now comes the Passover. Cannot overstate the significance of Passover for understanding the New Testament, for understanding a lot of things, for understanding God, for understanding the Old Testament. How about chapter 12, verse 1? Ready to go? We did a whole chapter. That was fast. It's short. (sighs) Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Did you know that the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings? It's going to be like a, a new Genesis. It's going to be, this, this event is so important. It's going to change your calendar. That's how important this is. That's how significant this is for you Jewish people. You're now going to read the year and its cycle differently because of this event that's about to happen. That's how big of a deal it is. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Notice substitution. There it is. It's just glaring off the page. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5 says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Can I say, relatively speaking, I'm not correcting the Bible, but when I read the whole Bible, I say, relatively speaking, it'll be without blemish. It'll be your best one. It won't be the one that there's something wrong with it, so let's give it to the Lord. And I'm also saying that because I'm nuancing theologically. You give your very best one, not one that's something wrong with it. It's got to be without spot or without blemish. You know why I'm nuancing theologically because actually it's in anticipation of the one and only one who will truly and in every way necessary be without what spot or blemish first peter chapter 1 verse 19 the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot We would have to work really hard to not see what's happening. It's all setting the stage and the narrative for the ultimate, truly, genuinely, in every way, necessary, spotless, spotless. Yep, covered two bases, one word. (laughs) Spotless, without blemish. It's It's all about setting the stage. Can I just remind you that... When Jesus shows up on the scene, it wasn't an afterthought. Can I remind you that Jesus, before he became a human being, is the eternal son? Can I remind you that there was a plan of redemption before the foundation of the world? Read Ephesians chapter 1. So if there's a plan for redemption before the foundation of the world, 
And it's going to have to do with the eternal son becoming a human being to represent his people. We're not making things up and seeing the connections. It was always ultimately going to be about Jesus, the spotless lamb without blemish. This is all part of God's grand design. He's writing the script. This is all happening so that history would head somewhere and unfold and we could stand back and say, wow, this is amazing. Too many times we interpret the Bible as if we're not supernaturalists. Too many times we we interpret the Bible like, oh, isn't it interesting how it all just kind of lined up? That's not how Christians have ever thought. The eternal God who has a purpose and a decree before the foundation of the world that will center on his son is, is laying it all out there, setting the stage, the characters and the actors and the shadows and getting us all ready for it. It's glorious. It really is wonderful. Well, we should keep moving. Maybe, maybe we should ask the question, though. One, one, one more thing, as pastors always say, and they don't mean it. Just one more thing. Isn't it interesting how the greatest force in the universe and outside of the universe, God himself, the great... I'm just going to... I'm just going to... Are you okay with me just saying greatest force, force in the universe? Because it's true. He's also the greatest force anywhere. But the greatest force in the universe, because that's where this is occurring, is going to be stopped. How? Through a lamb? How counterintuitive. Oh, through a lamb that really he's providing? These are the, the means he's giving? This is how you do it. This is how you avoid my wrath. This is how you avoid death. I'm going to tell you how to do it. It's not up to you to follow your heart or figure it out your way. And it's not going to be through trying this or trying that or trying something else. I'm going to provide the way. And I'm going to tell you to offer a spotless lamb without blemish. But the wrath of Almighty God is going to be stopped through a lamb. It's exciting. This is not how... You would do it if you were creating a religion. It's not how I would do it either. This is counterintuitive. This is great. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5 says, A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. So... We've got them on the doorposts and the lintel, so the side parts and the top part. Not too hard to understand. Of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Can I just remind you back in Exodus 1.14, uh, their lives were made bitter because of the oppression. Perhaps it's built in to remember what's happening here. God is freeing them from their bitter time. And we're already, we're going to see that this is meant to be a memorial. So you're going to remember. I don't think it's a mistake that you're doing this with the bitter herbs. Okay. Verse nine says, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. 
So you're going to do all of this stuff. It's all going to be in a hurry. Why are you going to do it this way? And remember, it's going to be memorialized. So this is how it's going to be repeated. You do it this way because God is going to deliver you and you've got to be ready. Typically, if you're going to have a great feast, what you're going to, you're not going to, you're going to take your belt off <laughs> or at least loosen it a notch or two. Okay. You get the idea, right? You're going to relax. You're not going to prepare, prepare for battle or prepare for work or prepare for, you know, doing those things. And he said, actually, this is all meant to help you to understand you're going to do it, but you're going to be ready to go. Because God is going to deliver you in a speedy kind of fashion. Then it says in verse 11 at the end, it is the Lord's Passover. Why the Lord's Passover? Verse 12 tells us, keep going. For I will pass through. That's not the Passover, but we're going to see here why it's called the Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So all of the gods of Egypt that were to protect them and care for Pharaoh and all of these things, they're not going to be able to stop me. They're not good saviors. They're not good protectors. They're not good. Can I borrow another word? They're not good messiahs. They're not good kings. They're not good deliverers. They're not good providers, if I haven't already said that. They claim to save and protect. They're not going to save and protect. You'll know that I am Yahweh, the one true and living God, the God of Israel, the different kind of God. We learned earlier, He is the great I am, the God of self-existence, the God who doesn't need anyone or anything, the God who has always been the God who never changes, never improves. The God who is different. And I'm going to show that I'm not like any of the gods of the nations, including this nation. Verse 13 says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will, here it is, Passover. So we have passed through in verse 12, but not with wrath. And now we have Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I don't want to make too much out of it. Uh, I'm not a grammar expert. I have to rely on others and their grammar and things. But it's interesting that he does call it a sign for you. And we would say it's actually a sign for God, right? And, and God sees it and passes over. And so you could say, well, it's a sign for you in that sense. But just, it's worth at least thinking about how it's a sign for them. Confidence, trust. It's going to be okay. You can trust me. I don't want to make a, a big deal out of that, but I thought it was at least worth observing and others have as well. It's kind of interesting, though, we should notice that the, the threat of death hangs over only the Egyptians. Actually, the threat of death hangs over everybody. That's why there needs to be the blood. Maybe we'll say more about that. Verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. 
and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So it's a, this is going to be a holiday. This is going to be ongoing. We changed the calendar because of this for you people. This is what you're going to do every year. And you're going to remember this. You're going to memorialize this. This is going to be a holiday for you. This is going to be a feast for you. So that you remember, 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 anticipating one who, at Passover, who is the spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, will say, do this in remembrance of me. Similar verbiage. Our God is a true deliverer. Our God is mighty to save. He's not like the gods of the nations. Redemption is God's business, and he does it through gracious substitution. Remember this. On a cold, snowy spring day today, we like to think about the 4th of July, right? I do. It's a, it's a great holiday. We, we celebrate our freedom. We celebrate our independence. We look forward to it. This is great. Rem- remember what happened. Remember our freedom. And we get you know emotional and sentimental about it and, and shed a tear perhaps. And so they're celebrating not their independence. They're celebrating their freedom and they're celebrating their dependence. But we can all relate to the emotional side of it. We can all relate to the concept. But what's happening here as it anticipates a greater deliverance is far greater. But we can all relate. We all get it. Did you see it says forever? That's going to come up again and again. This is so important. You're just going to keep doing this and you're going to keep doing this and you're going to keep doing this. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes when the Bible talks about forever, it means forever in the sense we would typically mean for it to mean forever. Sometimes, not just here, but sometimes the Bible uses forever in a sense more like this. Forever until it's eclipsed by something else that brings fulfillment that's more important. As long as you people are unique in and of yourselves, and as long as something greater doesn't come to fulfill this, you keep doing it. But we would know, like in Colossians, that these things are shadows. Anticipating the substance which belongs to Christ, who is our Passover lamb. And so in that sense, it goes on forever. But you know what? It gets changed. It's different. Read the book of Hebrews. There's something greater in anticipation. We have a greater Passover. To the point where it would be wrong to go back. Because we'd be going back to the shadows. And ignoring the substance. The ultimate lamb. Forever? Yes. If I, if we can nuance it. It's gonna be different though. Forever until fulfillment, or we would say it some way that's careful like that. Okay, let's, more, more details, tons of details. You know why there's so many details? Because it's important. That's why. It's a big deal. It's, how about this? It, this, what we're learning about is the greatest redemptive event ever in human history. Until the better one. So you need Exodus to read the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament. 
Okay, let's keep going. Seven days, verse 15 says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Unleavened because they're in a rush, right? You, you don't even have time to make bread the right way. That's the idea. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, and if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. Whoa. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but that every, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought you I brought your hosts, your many, your masses. I brought you, I delivered you out, right? Redeemed is the idea of the land of Egypt. Redemption, deliverance. Exodus 19, 6, 6 says, he delivers them, I'm paraphrasing, he delivers them to make them, now I'm not paraphrasing, a holy nation. Different. Deliverance to be distinct. Deliverance to be different. Okay, verse 17 goes on to say, let's keep going. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Again, why so particular? Worth asking. Why is God so particular? Because God is so particular. Okay, deal with it. He's God. Also, just know that the, the, the word, the idea, the concept of holy means particular, means different. He's totally different from all of the other gods. He's not domesticated. He's not manageable. They didn't make him. He's totally different. And he does want his people to stand out as different. Okay. And, and if you were not among these people observing them, you'd say those Jews are different. You might even use other words. You might say strange. Well, that would be a synonym for holy. They're not like everybody else. He wants them to be different, but they're not different just to be weird. They're different in their observances. Remembering God is a redeeming God. He's a delivering God. He's a saving God. He's a God who keeps his promises. And he's going to get into, part of this is teaching your kids about our redeeming God. We'll get into that maybe today. I don't know. <laughs> it's also particular because it's anticipating the greatest act of redemption ever. This being the greatest until there's the ultimate greatest. Okay, let's keep going. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. So a, a plant, like a kind of a bushy kind of plant, maybe this big, according to my estimation. Um, some of you uh, Middle Eastern food eaters like zitar. It's got hyssop in it. It's not only hyssop. It also has sesame seeds. It also has some other kind of herb in it and some salt, but hyssop, it's a Middle Eastern kind of thing, has an interesting taste. Uh, I ate some last night with some hummus, as a matter of fact. So, but the plant could be used like a paintbrush. You're going to dip it in and you're going to be able to then paint the door frame like this with your zitar. I mean, hyssop. Uh, <laughs> okay, keep going. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So you can, you can see the symbolism of it all. You're going to go in and everybody who goes through there, who goes through that blood or is protected by that blood is safe, is protected from getting what everyone actually deserves. Let's keep going then in verse 23. For the Lord will pass through, not pass over, pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. I don't know how far we're going to get, so I'll I'll say it now. I was going to say it later. Do notice what's happened. What's happening here is happening, has happened earlier in Exodus. He goes back to Genesis and he goes back to Abraham and he goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, the land, the land filled with flowing with milk and honey. It had been promised and you are going to go to that land. So the reason he's redeeming them here is because ultimately he's already made a promise to them to deliver them goes back to Genesis 12. It goes back to Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and other texts like that. They belong to him through Abrahamic covenant. So just keep that in mind. They, they've been promised the promised land and it goes back to Genesis. Where were we? I think in verse 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, right? Mom, what's wrong with the bread? Why do we do this? Why are we so particular? Why do we do it for these days and not other days? And why do we have to have belts on and shoes on when we're, we don't normally do it this way? What, what, what is this all about? You shall say, verse 27, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped, probably not because they understood everything, but because they know they were spared. They were delivered. They were set free. They were, they were ransomed. Verse 28, then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Then this awful event. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. I had to write in my margin, enjoying all of the protection imaginable. All it would have taken is a lamb to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock, verse 30 says, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. Awful. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Kind of weird. Desperate. Parent. Hard to know what to make of it all, but it's awful. We probably should ask the obvious question, why would God do such a thing? Let me just remind you that the text, there's nothing in the narrative that defends God. So I don't think I will either. God is not on trial. You are. That's what he did. I will remind you, I'm not defending God, but in Exodus 121, excuse me, Exodus 122, Pharaoh commanded his, all his people, I quote now, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. I also will remind you that it wasn't only the Egyptians who were, un, who were under the threat of death. So that I can then say, every single one of them, not just the firstborn, deserve to die. The Bible does teach in no uncertain terms that the soul that sins will die. That's Old Testament from Ezekiel. New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, first part, the wages of sin is, as you know, death. So before you're even tempted to judge God for killing people, and before you're even tempted to say, why would God allow bad things happen to good people to happen to good people? I have to say, please stop thinking like a person who's biblically illiterate. Nobody deserves to live. The fact that Pharaoh breathed one breath is God's mercy and his common grace. We have to remember that. We're asking the wrong questions a lot of the time because we're not thinking clearly or Christianly. God does make a merciful provision. He most certainly does. Can we do a little more? Let's do a little more. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead they're admitting our gods are not good gods our gods are not good saviors we're not safe so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Back in chapter 3, back in chapter 11, this is talked about. Remember, they've been oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. There's at least some payment. 
Verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor. Oh, that's actually why it happened. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. They've been fertile during that time, apparently. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So maybe other slaves from other places, maybe some Egyptians who had intermarried with Hebrews, maybe some God-fearing Egyptians, but they joined in. 39 then says, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time, verse 40 says, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's deliverance talk. That's redemption talk. That's freeing talk, saving talk, so that the same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord, by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Our God delivers. Our God saves. Our God sets us free from oppression and tyrants. That's the kind of God that we have. But you know, we know, it's one thing to be delivered temporarily, temporarily. And it's really good to be, I would not want to, to, to belittle that. But as I mentioned earlier, there's an ultimate enemy. The Bible says the ultimate enemy, the last enemy is death. He delivers from death. I'm having way too much fun. Okay, a little bit more. Okay, we're going to (laughs) read. I promise. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um, Okay, yep, here we go. Because I want to end on Jesus, and my notes are almost to Jesus. So here we go. Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. That takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. That's that's in, in play here. For no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. And some of you know, not all of you know this, but some of you know in John's gospel account, this very thing is referenced in connection to Jesus. John's gospel account is very Exodus-ish. It's Passover theme-infused says this in John chapter 19, verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb by design, by intention, so that God would pass over and not give his judgment and condemnation to everyone who is, if you will, covered by the blood through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of the ultimate lamb who lays his life down on behalf of his people. He's that one. And all of this is 
leading us to understand Him better. You know, this kind of study for me helps me, I think, to be a better Christian. To be able to read my Bible better and to read my Bible in such a way to say, God, you're an amazing Savior. You're an amazing Redeemer. You're an amazing Deliverer, Provider, Protector. And the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save. It's so good. It's so good. I've got more in case you all would like to come back after lunch. <laughs> but we'll put it on hold for there. But let's remember this. It's a quote from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uh, cares a lot about a lot of different things and ethics and morals and Christian behavior and following God's uh, command to love God and love neighbor. But he does say this in no uncertain certain terms, lest we would be confused. Remember Jesus Christ. <laughs> risen from the dead. Father, thank you so much for today. And thank you for the fact that we can be reminded of the fact that there are so many things in the Bible and there are so many important things and there are so many important things in life. But help us to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, our great Passover lamb who takes away our sins, not just of Jewish people, but Gentile people too the sins of the world. What a savior we have in him. May we find rest in him and may that rest lead to motivation to godly living for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.